Well, the Alaska Food Game Administration has made a startling revelation. And that startling revelation is that uh, reindeer, both male and female, grow horns, okay? So both male and female reindeer grow horns. Uh, the male reindeer, they find out, lose their horns probably in the late November to middle of December time frame. So it kind of gives you an idea where it is. The female reindeer don't lose their, their antlers, so to speak, until the springtime, like March or so when they give birth. So that means that every single story ever told about Santa and his reindeer from Rudolph to Blitzen has got to be wrong because they're not males because the males don't have antlers during that season, according to what the folks in Alaska says. So if we think about it, it has to be true because who else could carry a chubby guy in a red velvet suit all around the world at record speed, getting there on time and never get lost? It has to be girls, right? Yeah, all right. <laughs> well, women in the Bible play a significant role. And uh, we live in a society where we understand the significance of women, that we see that there is no difference between male and femaleness, outside of gender, of course, but status and stature. Uh, we all see that we are created equal in the eyes of God. And, and um, I, I know it's so important for us as we read the Bible to understand that as it was written in a very patriarchal society, but the writers through the, through the love of God continue to reveal to us the importance of women and their roles in that. If we go to the Old Testament, we see there's the story of Rahab, who was a prostitute, and God used her to make sure that she could hide the spies that came in in the promise of looking for the promised land. Deborah, another woman who, who became a judge in that, uh, in that period in between when Israel didn't have a king, and when no man had the guts or the gumption to step up and lead Israel, Deborah, a woman, did. And we, we learn about her in the book of, of Judges. We also uh, see that Esther played a significant role, uh, that when the people of Israel were ready to get snuffed off the earth, that she plays an instrumental role in talking to the king and finding favor, and she literally saves her people. The New Testament is also uh, filled with women who make a difference, and, and I'm convinced that, that the gospel stories have to be true because who in their right mind in a patriarchal society would say that it was women who first found the tomb to be empty and that they were the heralders of, of the resurrection? So we know that it has to be true in the sense that no one would have believed that, and God used the women to be the first ones to see that. We also know that God used Mary, a, a remarkable woman, to be a part of the birth story. But there's some things that are very important about Mary and Mary's life that we need to know. And outside of the Gospels of, of Matthew and Luke, where we try to, we start getting a little bit of an idea of the birth story about how Mary becomes the mother of Jesus, there's, there's all sorts of things that we also find. And um, Mary is seldom mentioned in the New Testament and not mentioned in the intertestamental letters at all. We find out that only a small reference in the book of Acts comes to be. And we also see that in the Gospel of John, John never uses the name Mary. He just calls mother or woman. And Mark only only uses a reference to Mary once. So, so here you have a woman who has such a significant part in the birth story and in the life of, of who we know is to be our Lord in flesh, Jesus Christ. And Mary has come to know a couple of things. And we see that in her life, that, that she is a person who is obedient. We see that she is also a marker for faith. She is a person who, who shows trust and a willingness uh, to be used by God in some pretty powerful things. 
When Mary reached her 13th birthday, uh, she was legal to be asked to be married. And Joseph, who was probably 17 or 18 at the time, went to his parents and asked for permission. That's the way that it went. He went to his parents to ask permission to get married. And then all of a sudden, it was up to his parents to approach Mary's parents. And when that finally happened, and the both sets of parents got together, the dowry had to be uh, talked about. Uh, dowry was what the bride's parents were going to give to the groom's parents um, as, as a large gift of their wealth. But what we learn in the story is Mary's family had no wealth at all. Joseph's family had no wealth at all. So really what would be the gift that would be brought to this marriage was Joseph's tenacity and strength as a laborer, as a carpenter, and a man who was also a faithful man. So, so Joseph was the one bringing the riches to the table through the work of his hardback. When both sets of parents got together and the agreement was met, it's called the Kedushin. And the Kedushin was this formal agreement, not a marriage, but a betrothal. And the only way to get out of the betrothal or engagement was through an act of divorce. And so the Kedushin was the legal binding agreement that brought these two together. We learn in the story that the angel Gabriel comes before Mary and he appears at, at a childlike state um, in that rising 13, almost to be 14 sense of age. And Gabriel says the words, rejoice child of grace, the Lord is your helper, you are blessed amongst most women. And Mary has to be thinking in her mind as she's looking at herself with this vision that's before her, she has to be wondering what in the world is going on. And visions, like I said last week, were not uncommon in the ancient world. So Mary realized that, that God did bring visions to people in a great sense. But Mary had to be wondering why she, a young country girl, a girl born in poverty, why God would use her in, in, a, in a way to bring glory to himself. And she had to also be thinking that as the angel began to tell her the story about the role that she would play, she began to wonder, will I ever see my parents again? And if this angel doesn't say what I think he's going to say, will I ever even see Joseph? So there Mary stands and she says nothing as the angel comes. And I can envision how she probably looked away. If you've ever been in a conversation with someone and they're kind of coming in at authority over you or they're bringing you news that you're not sure of, many of us will not make eye contact with that individual. We'll kind of look away or we'll look down. And that was the custom in the ancient world that you never looked anybody directly in the eye. To look somebody in the eye was an insult. And Mary, though she couldn't help but to try to look at the angel's eyes and look down and look, look in his eyes and look down because Gabriel had appeared before her and she wasn't sure what was going to happen from there. But Gabriel senses what's going on with Mary and he softens his voice and he says these words, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor in the eyes of God and behold, you are to be the mother and to bear a son and to call him Jesus and he will be great. He will be the son of the most high and that will be his title and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will be king over the house of Jacob forever and to his kingship there will be no end. Now no matter what the angel could have said after that, probably could not have calmed Mary's heart any because what started going through her mind is, okay, you're telling me I'm gonna become pregnant, I'm a virgin, I've never been with a man, how is this supposed to be? And Gabriel recognizes that and he turns to be more specific and he says to her that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For this reason, the child to be born will be acclaimed holy and son of God. Another word for that is incarnation, deity and humanity, all in one flesh 
will come. And Mary understood those words, but it added to the bewilderment as to what was going on in her mind. And she still, at that easy age, was trying to understand. But she began to be in tune with what the prophecies said about a coming Messiah and about how the Messiah would save his people. And all of a sudden, she finds herself that God coming to earth using her was creating even a sense of disbelief. Well, Gabriel sensed that trying to help a teenager understand this, this great revelation that she needed proof. Have you ever had to have somebody give you proof of something? Something that they've said to you that is so large and so big, you can't even get your arms around it, and you're kind of like, yeah, prove it. And that's exactly where Mary was, and, and Gabriel recognized that. And the only way that Gabriel could help her to see the incoming truth was to talk to her about her cousin Elizabeth. Mary had not seen Elizabeth for many years, and Mary knew that Elizabeth was well into her, into her late uh, 80s, early 90s. And Gabriel said that she too would conceive a child, and that child would also have a special purpose in God's plan. And Gabriel realized that when Mary saw Elizabeth and saw that she was pregnant, that she would once believe the revelation upon which he was placing upon her. Mary responded with these words, regard me as the humble servant of the Lord, and may all that you have said be fulfilled in me. And Gabriel stood there in silence and began to just kind of fade away until he was gone. Soon after, Mary goes to see Elizabeth, and she sees that she's pregnant, and this revelation of everything that's coming true. And I want to read to you Mary's response out of Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. This is the, the Good News Bible. So Gabriel has come to Mary. Mary has gone. She has seen Elizabeth. She knows she's pregnant. And all of a sudden, the verification and all that's there in Mary's response, she says, my heart praises the Lord. My soul is glad because God is my Savior. He has remembered me, his lowly servant. Mary is always in tune to her level of poverty. She's always in tune as to her status and stature within society. My, my lonely servant. From now on, all people will call me happy because of the great things that the mighty God has done for me. His name is holy from one generation to another. He shows mercy to those who honor him. So she's now remembering the scriptures of her Bible, which is the Old Testament, which would be the writings of the prophets and the Psalms. And she's beginning to recall these things. He has outstretched his mighty arm and scattered the proud with all their plans. He has brought down mighty kings from their thrones, and he's lifted up the lowly. <clears throat> he has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has kept the promise that he made to our ancestors. So Mary knew that one day the Messiah would come, and so she's proclaiming these words that it's coming true, and he has come to the help of his servant Israel. He is remembered to show mercy to Abraham, to all of his descendants forever. And Mary stayed with Elizabeth about three months, and then she went back home. Now that piece of scripture is known as Mary's song. And, and it's a song that is written of Mary uh, testifying, of Mary giving uh, her words of hope and encouragement, but more importantly, reflecting of what God is doing in her life. 
And we begin to see that Mary's story is paralleling another person in the Old Testament that she would have been very familiar with. Her name is Hannah. And we find Hannah's story in 2 Samuel. And Hannah was also a, a woman whose, whose womb was barren, and she had prayed and prayed and prayed that God would bless her with a child. And we see that through that experience that Mary and Hannah go through similar experiences. And what we see come out of that is Hannah ultimately gives birth to the great prophet Samuel, who then is the one who selects David to be king and starts the whole Davidic line uh, with the purpose of what God sees. But the prophet Eli was there, and, and Eli began to look at Hannah and, and how she would just pray with her tears, and her tears would turn into laughter and, and, and all of these things. And, and many people thought that she was a heavy drinker and that she was drunk all the time. But Eli realized and said to her, no, no, no. God has overwhelmed you and he has heard your prayer and God will come and give you the child that which you seek. So Mary remembers this story and she knows that, that like Elizabeth and like her and like Hannah, all the commonality that is there and that the Holy Spirit has brought forth this ability for her to conceive a child. She says, I am the Lord's servant and may your word to me be fulfilled. The word servant is really important. Servant or servanthood. One who serves, one whom a master has authority over. And we look at the word servant and, and Mary kind of is looking at her job description and she's saying that she is to be the mother of God and all that and, and I'm your servant. And I kind of was thinking about, wow, that sounds a lot like our St. Paul job descriptions. You know, you'll do all these things and at the very bottom is the fine print with a magnifying glass and the microtelescope micro and anything else asked for by the pastor. And so, so Mary realizes that, that she has to do what the master has asked her to do, that God has said, you will give birth, and she says, I am your humble servant, and she moves forward with that. Now, we talk a lot in church about, about humility, and we talk about godly humility, and humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. And so there's a huge difference that's with that. So, so when we show humility and we demonstrate that, we basically take ourselves out of the spotlight. It's not about us. We don't go make personal appeals and things to people based upon our own name and because we think we're somebody. But what we see is we step aside and we see the work of God happen through us. And this is what Mary was doing. So her song is a song of faith. And she sings of God's salvation, even though nothing around her changed. Mary was still a teenager. She was still bewildered. Herod was still king and on the throne. The Romans were still being oppressive. Women were not given their specific rights. Nothing had changed with this promise that the angel said to her about giving birth to Messiah. But Mary knew once the birth happened, the world would change. And that God would fulfill the promise that he made so long ago. I'm thinking about the journey. And, and, and so, so she, she knows she's pregnant. The time has come. The angel has spoken to Joseph. He's reconciled all that with her. And everything is moving forward and God's plan has been enacted. Imagine with me for a minute, they're on the road to Bethlehem. And as they're on that road and it becomes a very tiring place, and as they're walking and Mary is being carried by the donkey and Joseph is by her side, as they're getting to that place and they finally get into the city of David and what they find out is that there is nowhere for them to go and the only place that's available is something called a stall, a place where animals are kept in a small cave, probably underneath the inn 
or a little bit down the road. And that's where Mary was to bring the king of kings into the world. The Jewish custom was that every woman giving birth must have a midwife present. Mary would have no midwife. And at the age of 13, likely even early 14, she would have to give birth to a child on her own. And that experience was one that would change her life. I can just visualize how Joseph gets her inside of this um, cave or this stall or this stable, whatever term we would like to use. And Joseph begins to, to uh, take care of things and he's making sure that there's clean straw inside of the, of the manger. And he's looking at Mary and, and Mary's looking at him and he realizes that, you know, I probably need to leave because I don't need to be here because she wants to do this on her own. So what does Joseph do? He goes and he boils water. I mean, what else do men do when their wives are pregnant, get ready to birth? We boil water, okay? So, so he begins to boil water, and he has that water, and it's ready. It's ready for that opportunity of coming to help with the disinfection and the warmth and all that would come. And Joseph stays outside of the area, and Mary begins to straddle the wall at great birthing pains. And ultimately, Joseph begins to hear the cry of a newborn, and he realizes, and he wants to run in, and he wants to be with her, but he realizes, no, no, Mary, Mary needs to take care of this. I'll only be in the way, and, and she hasn't called for me yet. And then he hears her whisper his name, Joseph. And he walks inside of the area, and there she is sitting on a stool, tailor style, and her hair's been combed, and her face has been somewhat cleaned up, but she has the, the blueness under her eyes of the labor of what's just happened. And Joseph moves over toward her to that place where he had put that fresh, that fresh straw. And he begins to see the, the swaddling, the cloths that Mary had so particularly packed on their road, on their journey into Bethlehem. And as he peels that away, he looks and he sees this squished up, wrinkled red little face, a newborn, a baby, and Joseph is bewildered, and yet he's mesmerized, and he's at a point where he doesn't know what to think. And he begins to say to himself, this is what the angels proclaim? This is the King of kings, the Lord of lords? This is what this is all about? And then he bows down on his knees, and he cradles the manger, and he begins to thank God for this great blessing and honor in his life to be the father figure of Jesus the Christ. You know, I was thinking about how so often when we read this biblical account, we sometimes stonewall ourselves and we start nitpicking at, well, did the scripture say this or did it say that? Well, I think it said this. Well, it never really said that. And even the manger, there's been lots of arguments about what was the manger? Was it, was it made of wood and, and was it a feeding trough or, or was it you know, made, hewn out of stone and did it hold water? What exactly was it? And, and folks, the question is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it was made of. But really, the point is that first Christmas, the manger was the womb of Mary. She carried the Christ child, and she gave birth to God into the world. And I'm so fascinated by that, that as to what Mary must have thought in, in all of that time of that pregnancy, that she was the manger carrying the living God, and as Jesus came born into the world. But then it takes it a step further because not only was Mary the, the first manger, but every day you and I are carriers of the Christ, aren't we? So we are the mangers of Christ as well. 
that Christ lives in us. The seed of God is inside of us. The will, the heart of God is inside of us. The love of God is inside of us. And we carry that with us, ready to give birth to it wherever we go as we meet people or as we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the question becomes, instead of us worrying and wondering about was it wood or stone and did it have, was it shaped like this or like that, let us remember the truth that the manger is us. And like Mary, we too give birth to Jesus into the world. And let us be encouraged to do that. Let us share our story of faith. Let us tell people about the imperfections of our lives, but that despite that, God loves us. And God has a way of redeeming even the atrocities of the lives of which we live. So today, let us go forward with that message. We carry the Christ and let us give Christ to the world. Amen.